Hi there, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 5, Episode 1 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. To mark the new season, we decided to highlight some of the narratives, some of the storylines to follow over the next nine months or so across the four leagues we predominantly cover. We looked at Strasbourg's new Blue Dawn, we discussed Atalanta's post-Hoyland attack, we put Jude Bellingham's era-launching debut antics under the road to nowhere microscope and we unpacked Heidenheim's genuine Bundesliga fairy tale. We looked at all of those topics and so much more in our usual detailed way. Do check out the show notes for a comprehensive running order of what we discussed and when. This episode is, of course, produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops subscription-based newsletter. They find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit FreelanceFootballOps.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. Right, on now with the episode. Hopefully you're all staying safe and hopefully you're all staying well. Thanks, as always, for your continued support. Enjoy. Dear listener, let me tell you, it feels exquisite to be back and to be joined once again by the esteemed company of Rudy Barlow and Michael Jones. It does just feel like a moment since we wrapped up season four, and yet here we are back for the fifth season of the podcast. Rudy Barlow, looking very content there over in Madrid. How is life treating you? How is your summer going? And yeah, what are you What's going through your heads these days? Well, not a lot, to be honest. The heat here is uh, stifling, it has to be said. I mean, I'm currently actually in uh, Santiago de Compostela, which is the end of the Camino de Santiago for uh, those that have ever done it or thought about it. It's a lovely place, it has to be said. Um, But uh, yeah, I have not made my pilgrimage here. I'm making a pilgrimage eventually to the coast to escape that heat. So uh, yeah, I'm doing okay. But uh, the 40 degrees uh, evenings in Madrid have been... uh, Pretty hard on the- so yeah, just about hanging in there. Good stuff. Glad to hear it, Barlow. And yeah, I suppose if you were looking for some cooler climates, you could always take a trip back to the good old Stockbridge to visit your your good friend James Williamson. I'm pretty sure that the the Edinburgh weather this summer has been disappointing, uh, to put it one way. Michael Jones, <laughs> Michael Jones, how are you doing? How has your summer been? And yeah, what's going what's going through your head? Yeah, Wolverhampton Wanderers aside, it's been quite nice, actually. In fact, their troubles have allowed me to just escape sort of that devout tribalism in that sense. And yeah, the only time I spent anywhere in a European capital was Paris for a couple of days. But it wasn't long enough for me and my partner there to justify a visit to Paris FC, who uh, I think playing an opening league der game there. So nothing to report in that sense. But yeah, did I was actually able to catch Renault over the summer, which I'm looking forward to discussing at some point. But yeah, what about you, Ali? Yes, I'm very well, Michael. It was an enjoyable summer. I started a new job 
in June and yeah, absolutely loving that. And Kilmarnock are actually playing rather well as well for the time being, of course, beating Celtic 1-0 at Rugby Park on Sunday. So if my voice does give way at points throughout this episode, then we can blame it on that. It was at Rugby Park for that game and yeah, I was uh, enjoying myself to put it one way. But yeah, enough about Kilmarnock, enough about Wolves and enough about yeah British football. We're here to talk about football on the continent and I think the best place for us to start is in Spain with some chat on La Liga. Now, Real Madrid have had a curious summer this season. Jude Bellingham is the Galactico signing. Champions League semi-finalist Brahim Diaz has returned, as has left-back Fran Garcia. And third top scorer last year, Hozelu, is also back at the club. Carlo Ancelotti has devised a new system, but with Kylian Mbappe seemingly all smiles in PSG training, the big question, in spite of Hozelu's presence, is... Can Real Madrid win La Liga without a striker? Well, so far it has to be said, probably. I mean, they've been uh, pretty good from their, their start. They went up to Bilbao and they beat Athletic Club 2-0 in a very comfortable performance. And then they beat Almeria 3-1 at the weekend. And uh, yeah, if you're looking to tune into some La Liga, if you haven't already caught uh, any of Real Madrid's games, well, well then, welcome to the Jude Bellingham Adidas advert. I mean, this is basically... I think perhaps it's maybe less of a thing these days because I remember kind of when the World Cup was on and it was about 2006, 2010, you used to have those kind of Adidas and Nike adverts that went on for about three minutes and they were an entire story on their own. But what you saw against Athletic Club up in San Mamez, up in the kind of uh, very kind of screechy atmosphere there where they were ready to kind of uh, eat Real Madrid was Bellingham all over the pitch. You saw him tackling back. You saw him making lung-busting runs. You saw him dribbling out on the touchline and, and going past two or three players and eventually scoring. He scores. He kind of does his classic trademark celebration, arms out like the Angel of the North to the Athletic Club fans. And there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of birds in the, in the crowd, shall we say. But it, it was a really impressive performance, it has to be said, from Bellingham. And the way that Ancelotti set up that system is in kind of a 4-4-2 diamond with those two at the top, Rodrigo Goes and Vinicius Jr., just kind of slightly ahead, but neither kind of as a, as a classic number nine, you'd have to say. And so you've got Bellingham kind of given the freedom to do whatever he wants. He's closer to goal than I think he was for Dortmund, but he's he's been very much given this role as this is your team. And what's been... Most impressive for me is the fact that Real Madrid's other players have seen this kind of 19, 20-year-old come into the team and totally accepted his role at the start of the show. I mean, Vinicius Jr. is the one question that we'll kind of come on to, but but yeah, they've accepted that Bellingham is the star of the show. Tony Kroos is looking for him. All the other players are looking for him. Vinicius Jr. scores at the weekend, mimics Bellingham's celebration, and then is after the match tweeting Bellingham saying, hey, Jude, and it, it's just it's incredible to see how a player has kind of taken Real Madrid by storm so kind of effortlessly almost and just really kind of grabbed this challenge by the by the neck. And and yeah, Bellingham, as as I say, I mean, this is early doors. We've seen them play two games against kind of um not weaker opposition, but certainly sides that you wouldn't expect to be in the top four. And things have gone very well. Now that question, those kind of flaws that perhaps will seep into their game later on. Vinicius Jr. does not look like the Vinicius Jr. that we saw last season. Now, last season, even with kind of a a Benzema that's not firing on all cylinders, you saw a Vinicius Jr. that kind of 
in his own way, kind of grabbed games by the neck. He was the star of the show. He was running at defenders. He was driving Real Madrid forward. He was dragging them through these games. Now, against Amory and Athletic Club, you've seen a Vinicius that's been a little bit out of sorts, even though he scores against uh, Almeria, he scores a very good goal, kind of knocks it into the top corner almost casually. Angelotti said that we'll see less of Vinicius on the ball, we'll see less of him dribbling, and we'll see more of him getting into kind of goal-scoring opportunities, goal-scoring positions. And that might be the case, but it's a Vinicius that looks a little bit less, com- less comfortable, and you wonder if Vinicius taken out of that kind of wide position where I think Graham Hunter was mentioning that he has that extra kind of five, six yards to get up speed to kind of get defenders going backwards. That's that's going to be a kind of different challenge for him. And, and does that kind of work long term? We'll see. So far, Bellingham has proven that he has kind of the, the all-round game to arrive late in the box. He has that goal-scoring instinct to be able to finish very quickly. He He's been magnificent so far, it has to be said. Um, and then once you face kind of those better teams as well, you're looking at Fran Garcia, who so far has been playing because Ferlon Mundi is again injured. You see Danny Carvajal, who's aging and has been rather good so far, it has to be said. I mean, we've kind of noted him as perhaps one of the potential weak points of this Real Madrid at times in recent seasons. But he's been as good a Carvajal as I've seen for some time. But once Real Madrid get into perhaps more testing games, games where they're stretched a bit more often, does Carvajal have the legs to get up and down that flank? Does Flan Garcia have the support if he's doubled up on? Because, I mean, I've seen him play for Rio quite a bit, and at times he does get caught out at the back post. So there's going to be questions asked of them. I think almost more pertinent than can they win the league without a striker. Looking at those kind of first two games where they scored five goals, is can they win the league without Milton and Thibaut Courtois? Both of them have picked up ACL, ACL injuries. They're going to be out for some time. It's going to be a huge kind of question mark against their defence because I think you could kind of look at the sides at the start of the season and say, right, okay, if they do have that solid defence, if they do have Courtois in great form, if they do have Milton at the top of his game, they might only need one or two goals to win these games. And that's what Vinicius Jr. was doing for them at various points last season. And it's what Jude Bellingham has been doing for them at the start of this season. But if you're conceding goals and you saw uh, Sergio Arribas come and score against his kind of former club after a couple of minutes for Almeria, you saw vulnerability certainly for that Real Madrid side away from home. If they can keep being sheets, can they kind of muster out those two free goal performances against the tougher opposition, against games where they kind of get down to the 60th, 70th minute and they're still needing a goal? That's going to be the big question. And Bellingham, as I say, so far has been fantastic. But it is unorthodox. It's unorthodox for the reason you don't really see many teams play basically without a striker, I think. Some of the few teams that have done it successfully is kind of Barcelona with Lionel Messi or Pep Guardiola, Manchester City. I mean, there's other examples, I'm sure. Uh, Germany at kind of World Cups as well but but yeah it's not something that happens frequently and there's a reason for that so can Carlo Ancelotti pull it off I still have my doubts but in terms of a start I don't think you could have wished it to go any better so uh, yeah tune into the the Jude Bellingham advert experience while it lasts at least sounds fascinating well moving up to the cooler climbs of Galicia and the former Real Madrid manager Rafael Benitez is back in action Celta Vigo have sold star midfielder Gabri Vega, and that in theory is a catalyst for the Rafa revolution. However, Benitez is a major departure from the Celta we've become used to, and he is nothing if not idiosyncratic. 
Have we got any clues about how this might go? Yeah, we've got kind of clues about what is being kind of looked for. And I think what Benitez wants, what Celta wants, and what Luis Campos wants, who's, of course, at PSG, but he's also part-time at Celta Vigo as their kind of transfer advisor. So, I mean, for me, the big danger with this Rafa Benitez side is it ends up being a halfway house. I mean, we're talking about Gabri Vega there. That deal still isn't done. We've got nine days to go in the transfer window as we record. So we're looking at kind of nine days where if they do get back Gabri Vega money, they'll try and reinvest that. But you're working on a clock there and it's going to be difficult to reinvest that sensibly. You're looking at a Rafa Benitez, who I think has very consciously tried to undergo a rebrand. I mean, the Benitez in latter years, as we've known him at kind of likes in Newcastle or Everton, has been a somewhat stodgy manager who sets up your defence well and, and makes sure that you're kind of solid at the back and probably is going to get you good results and, and keep you in a division if you want him to. But not a manager that excites fans. He's coming into a Celta that we know in recent years haven't always been successful, but generally they've been fun. I mean, they've got Iago Aspas, Gabriel Vega last season was a revelation. They've had kind of fun attacking teams that have really kind of gone up and down the field. And Benitez, one of the things that he's spoken about quite extensively in interviews is the fact that he's been studying defences and how they bring the ball out from the back. And he's been going back through games and and, and working out new methods of trying to uh, play out from the back. So that's something that we'll see. He's pressed higher in his opening two games. He's had a defeat to Osasuna, Tuna, where they looked a little bit kind of bland and lacking in kind of bite and fire. And then they had a 1-1 draw away to Real Sociedad, which is a good result. And they, they kind of earned that. And they they went they did that very well. They changed to three at the back for the last half hour, pressed up a little bit higher and, and really forced the issue for themselves. So, yeah, I think we're going to see a Benitez that consciously is not only trying to rebrand in terms of his image, but also trying to rebrand in terms of his own football. And he's trying to do this with a Celta squad that is, yeah, partly still kind of Chacho Kudet's squad, partly Carlos Carvajal's squad. And he's going to have to really kind of push for the players that he wants in these final days of the transfer window. So we're looking at a, we're looking at a side that we don't quite know who's going to be there in nine days' time. We don't quite know whether Benitez is going to feel capable of playing that he, the way that he wants to. And we don't quite know if Benitez is going to be able to impart those methods on a on a new side and do something different. I mean, can a, can a leopard change his spots kind of thing? That That's going to be the question. I think regardless of what happens, it's going to be pretty entertaining. I think we're going to see a side that is probably going to be pretty functional at times. But, but I... I have a kind of mild optimism for Benitez looking at kind of the early stages because in theory, they should only become more and more molded to Benitez's methods and to Benitez's new ideas, but it'll be a test of him as to whether he can kind of stick to them. So, uh, so yeah, another one to, to keep tuned, uh, keep a close eye on. Yeah, well, if this could be the rebirth of Rafa Benitez and I'm here for it because I'm certainly not invested in the previous version, but Finally, for our young player to keep an eye on, we're going back to the well of Villarreal, who I swear we went to last year as well on the same question. You've gone for one of their less heralded names to really please the road to nowhere hipsters. Just tell us a little bit about Ramon Terraz. Yeah, Ramon Terraz is a player that I've somewhat kind of got a little bit of a kind of footballer crush on. I mean, I, I really like him. And Villarreal seem to have a habit of producing footballers that... Um, I really enjoy it. And last season, he kind of came into the side. He was on loan from Girona at Villarreal B. So not a player that anybody really thought that 
they had high hopes of kind of coming into La Liga and, and making a mark. But under Kike Setien, he had 16 appearances, 11 starts. And this season so far, he started both games. And OK, it's it's two free games. But uh, but yeah, he's he's leading kind of some of the top European leagues for progressive passes, for tackles. He's in that kind of top five. So he's a player that I just think he's got it all. I mean, he's got vision. He can pick out kind of that final pass. He can slide it through a defence. He can dink it over a defence for an on-rushing attacker. He's got um, the cojones. He doesn't mind the challenge. He doesn't mind kind of getting in the face of kind of a, a more heralded or a, or a real kind of star. I mean, we've seen that against Real Madrid at times last season. He's got that kind of precise passing. He's got a little bit of aggression. And you're looking at a team with an aging Danny Parejo in it. And I think it's a blessing for Villarreal that Terraz has kind of come through. They signed him permanently from Girona this summer for about two and a half million in, a, in what I think is going to be the the uh, one of the bargains of the summer. I mean, there's a phrase in Spanish, which is kind of a toro campista, which is in theory meant to kind of be someone that kind of covers the entire pitch in the way that kind of Bellingham might. But in my sense, he's, he's a kind of toro campista because he can do all, he has all the attributes to make him not only kind of a good kind of Spanish midfielder in the classic sense of somebody that is neat on the ball, that's tidy on the ball, that kind of understands his positional sense where he should be at all the times. But but someone that I think is just, uh, yeah, fantastic because I think he can he can even kind of dribble past players, kind of bringing the ball out in a kind of Frankie de Jong style. So, so yeah, player that uh, has really kind of... Um, I've developed a crush on in recent months and, and I will be keeping another kind of close eye, one of my thousand eyes that I apparently have um, on Ramon Terraz this season because I think he's fantastic. And uh, yeah, quick shout outs for Alex Baena and Aymar Orod, you know, Sosuna, who I think are, again, players to, to watch and fantastic fun. Excellent. As always, Barlow, yeah, it feels like Miriam are getting into this habit of producing exciting young players both to watch and to mention on this very podcast and yeah more generally some fantastic storylines across La Liga for our listeners to follow this season. Okay we are going to take a quick break now in part two we're going to speak to Michael Jones about some of the storylines to follow in Italy this season. We'll be right back. Serie A has witnessed a shift in power over the last three seasons with titles dominated by teams outside the traditional footballing strongholds of Rome and Turin. Now, against that backdrop, AS Roma and Juventus are now facing pivotal seasons under the guidance of Jose Mourinho and Massimiliano Allegri, respectively. Both managers have thus far struggled to meet expectations, it's fair to say. As the spotlight intensifies, Michael, will this be the season in which they truly make their mark? Yeah, I think it's fair to say the spotlight's certainly going to intensify on them both. I mean, if we look at those past few seasons and going into this one as well, I think it's kind of been fair to say that going into the season, it's been really hard to pick an outright winner. And I think the outright predictions have often been wrong in the last few seasons. What we have seen with Juventus under Allegri in his second tenure and Roma under Mourinho is that they haven't really met the remits of what was set to them or what you would expect to be set to them and the clubs of their size since joining. And that was Juventus to be dominating Italian football and have the Scudetto back in the hands, which they've not had since Maurizio Sarri in 2020. 
And for Roma to be back in the Champions League, which has also not happened, although they did get to the Europa League final at the expense of their league campaign last season. But in terms of sort of how we can look at them going into the season, we only have one game really to face off so far. And starting with Juventus, really positive signs for them. They won 3-0 against Genoa and just two minutes away from home and two minutes into the new season, they were off and running. Federico Chiesa, first full season with him, you would hope without injuries in three campaigns, which could be massive. We saw, I think the whole world saw how good he could be at Euro 2020. And when he has been fit again, he's not looked far off that player, but he's got just two minutes in with a brilliantly drilled shot from outside of the box. Uh, they then went 2-0 up in 20 minutes, a half penalty festival ever silly from a Derby County player, Irish international. Didn't really think it was a handball and then Dizan Vlavic converted and then they scored again just on the brink of half time. It was a sumptuous ball from a young wingback, Andrea Cambiasso, who was out on loan at Bologna last season and he put it onto the head of Adrian Rabio who scored the goal. I mean, there's there's an interesting case with all those players, which kind of sums up Juventus' position at the moment. You've got Chiesa, a big question marks over whether he can stay fit, and Vlaovic and Rabiot, both of whom have been really heavily linked with moves away. And that sense of uncertainty has kind of overshadowed lots of Juventus' pre-season preparations, but you wouldn't have known it from the opening day performance. And Allegri has proven in the past that he can manage well in times of adversity, you know, the plus Valenze case is something that we highly reported and covered last season on the podcast. But what Juventus, what we said for a long amount of time, they need to do is that they need to be more expansive tactically. And there are signs in this to the start of this season that that might be the case. They played against Genoa with only one natural centre back in Bremen, no Benucci, no Chiellini. He, he had Alexandro and Danilo either side of him as sort of wide centre-backs. And then Timothy Ware, the only real summer arrival as a right wing-back, a bit of a new role for him. And then this Cambiasso, who uh, has actually just cut his long hair over the weekend after Allegri told him to, which I kind of come on to as a bit of a theme in itself on the left wing-back. And overall, it was really encouraging opening day against a team um, not generous, sorry, you didn't say, but against a team who petered out last season, but started the last campaign very strong. And one other big factor for Juventus this season is that they don't have any European football. Pro of the, the benefits of that is that they can focus on the league. The I guess what's not ideal is it restricts them financially. You know, even a cut price Romelo Lukaku deal has proven hard to materialise, but. They've also been hit by the likes of Moises Ken and Manuel Locatelli. Uh, the permanent transfers for them have just had to go through this summer, although I suspect they'll be staggered pavements. They're two players who haven't really hit the heights. They had had a, either previous spells at Juventus or in Italy, in Locatelli's case with Sassuolo and with the national team. Um, I guess kind of going the other way, you've got Kuleseski who's gone for money, Paredes has gone to Roma on loan from PSG. And Gael Di Maria, another former PSG player, he's gone back to Benfica. And Frank Quadrado has gone to Inter Milan. So lots of wages off the books. Kind of an indicator at the time. And then the real sort of clever transfer business they've done is maybe Dennis Zagaria, whose stock, if anything's dropped since joining Juventus. Yeah, they've made about fourfold, a fourfold profit on what they bought him for a cut price deal from Borussia Mönchengladbach. And that 
like we said, Timothy Ware is kind of the only player to come in. But the really exciting thing about this Juventus team this season is that they have a lot of really, really good young players. They had Fabio Moretti and Nicola Fagioli. Fagioli came off the bench, but in in the midfield, but Moretti started. Uh, there was a debut for Kenan, Kenan Yildiz, young Turkish international group in Germany. They got him from Bayern Munich. Uh, Samuel Elling Jr. came on for Cambiasso, play we talked about Elling Jr., young English and England youth international. And what this poses for Allegri when he's maybe had a big amount of senior pros in the past is that he can hopefully look to mould a lot of these young talents. You will expect that they will respect him a lot. And it will be a case of if he can get them playing a slightly more expansive, more attacking sense of football, that they may living and I guess you kind of move on to Roma quickly and they had a contrasting summer and a contrasting start and contrary to popular belief that they didn't actually spend that much they only spent a three and a half million pounds this summer despite the influx of players who seem to have arrived and on paper in terms of squad rebuilds go I'm pretty impressed but I'll come on to that in a moment but the the, the game against Salernitana they drew 2-2 Andrea Bellotti didn't score a single goal when he arrived since arriving at Roma last summer, he scored a brace. He actually scored in the first minute that was disallowed as well. Il Gallo, known as a rooster. And yeah, they ended up conceding two goals from Antonio Candreva, so two former Azuri teammates. But, you know, it, it, there was a bit of a sense, tactically, you could have maybe criticised Marini on the opening day in similar forms to last season, that, that looking at the team, it looked like, Mourinho was maybe stuck in two minds about the team slightly lopsided between a rigidness on the right and a more flary, flamboyant uh, collection of players on the left-hand side. But really, Roma did create a number of chances and I think nine out of ten games they would have beaten Salernitana comfortably. Antonio Candreva's shots, uh, the goals he scored, it had a combined 0.13 xG and they had a 0.15 xG for the whole game, whereas Roma had just under two, I think they had one point. Nine six, and it was yeah quite an incredible game from a statistical perspective. But looking at Roma, I wouldn't go sort of too deep into the first game in terms of not being able to beat a pretty decent Salernitana side under the guidance of Paolo Sosa. Um, in terms of that, but yeah, they have done some really good business. Roma, I think that is a reason, unlike Juventus, to be really excited for Fallen Van Endeka. He arrived from Eintracht Frankfurt, really established player. For the German side, um, in place of Ibanez, he went to 30 million for 30 million pounds to Al Ali in Saudi Arabia. It's good money, but with that obvious Saudi caveat, Renato Sanchez, Leandro Paredes uh, have arrived on loan. So has Rasmus Christensen. Safe to say, from what I saw at Leeds, I'm not as excited about him. And then Ossi has also arrived on a free sign and could be the, maybe the most curious sign because you feel like that was a transfer that should have happened a couple of years ago where the likes of Justin Clivert, Emmanuel Matic have all left. But I think what we I kind of just round up your question by saying is that both managers have almost you get the impression by these sort of young squads that they've built they for this season they've almost succumbed to building more expansive young energetic teams for certain because that has been what the winning formula has been in Serie A over the past few seasons and like I said in in terms of respect I think they should be able to manage that well it's just whether they can maximize the tools disposal of another and I just closed by really quickly saying that the ex-Lavorno president Alvaro Spinelli made a really interesting comment about Allegri saying this will be his last season because he thinks Allegri will be able to guide Juventus back to the top and that will be his redemption but 
that could be the thing that undoes this for both of them, that these two managers have kind of arrived back at these clubs, maybe looking for better moves elsewhere at other points, almost with a point to prove to the world about themselves rather than the team. And if it does become a case of that, where there is too much focus on these managers, then the pressure may eventually give in and this could be the last we see. But initial signs, I think there's cause for optimism for both. Now, the transfer saga involving Rasmus Hoyen's move from Atalanta to Manchester United was one of the summer's longest narratives. Since Hoyen's departure, Atalanta's forward line has undergone a transformation of sorts in a bid to recreate the successes enjoyed previously under Gian Piero Gasparini. Could it be that with the emergence of this new-look attacking force, Atalanta are now even better equipped to make a triumphant return to the higher echelons of football, Michael? Yeah, it'd be fantastic if they could. I mean, one of the big setbacks they have just suffered is that uh, El Bilal Torre, their record signing now from Almeria in Spain, um, has suffered a serious injury. It's not quite so clear what that serious injury is at this point, but he's expected to be out sidelined for a number of months. But despite that, like you said, there the the there are real reasons to be excited about Atalanta, despite the departure of Rasmus Hoyland. I think if people hadn't been following Atalanta and Hoyland too much last season, you could easily be sort of lured into the sense that this Hoyland player, you know, playing for a team that finished fifth in Syria, was maybe sort of, a, a, you know, similar to a Haaland type player carrying a team to sort of a high position in the league. When I don't think that was really the case, you know, Hoyland had a great breakthrough season in the top five league. He'd had a great season at Stem Clarks the season before. But he certainly wasn't sort of the consistently most, well, I guess the most consistent player. And he certainly just had moments of genius and certainly looks a huge prospect. And I hope he does well at Manchester United because I really enjoyed watching him. He's someone we called out quite early on the show. But when I look at this Atalanta squad compared to last season's, I must admit, I'm so excited to see what they can do, especially if they can break into the top four with Serie A being so open. It, it's fair to say that, you know, when you do consider the relatively small outlay from Roma and Juventus that we just discussed, despite the number of incomings at Roma, this could be sort of Atalanta's biggest statement summer in their history. You know, this is a team sort of previously renowned for firstly, having a really successful academy, bringing players through young. And then I guess in more recent years, when they've had to replace the likes of Ilicic and Papi Gomez, that they've maybe tried to bring in players who are quite young, from the likes of Sassuolo, Jeremy Bogger, a good example, who they just sold on this summer, who they thought they may be able to take to the next level. But I don't think that has maybe that recruitment strategy quite worked so well. You know, they missed out on Champions League football for the past two seasons now, but they went too far off. Last season was certainly progress made. But yeah, this summer they brought in Gianluca Scamacca, whose first season in England under David Moyes didn't exactly go to plan. I think there could be questions raised about West Ham's recruitment and, you know, Moyes' role in that also, as well as the player. Um, Sharda Ketelare has arrived from AC Milan on loan, £3 million loan fee of an option to buy, which is believed to be similar to El Bilal Torres. And this is a player who, similar to Belotti in his first season for a big club in Serie A, had failed to score. Of course, he scores on his debut in a 2-0 win versus Sassuolo. 
And then we've also seen the arrivals from the Bundesliga in the form of Mitchell Backer, ten million pounds from Bayer and Ser Klasenac, a player I'm sure many uh, Arsenal fans are very familiar with as well. But he's looks to have been signed as one of Atalanta's back three, as opposed to a wing back as he thought played earlier in his career. But yeah, a number of departures. Some have been out on loan last season, such as Matej Petin and Roman Malinovsky. But Joaquin Mela, another player, maybe fits into that Bogatite role, despite his success at international. Or Mary Demaral, he has gone to Saudi Arabia also. And Hoyland was the big one, who was maybe slight different recruitment policy to the rest of them. But like we said, there's been this sort of interesting shift. But if anything, now they've kind of got a lot of quite high-profile young players who have been on the radar or have been at some really big clubs. But for whatever reason, or for one reason or another, some of the recent moves, if you think of the Catalari and Scamacca in particular, haven't quite worked out. So what Gasparini maybe is trying to build is a team that is just super hungry, not just to have success at their respective clubs, but to also prove a point um, in their own personal right. And I think that could be a really exciting combination. Edison, who was a great signing from Salernitana last season, he came on in the second half in the game against Aswell and they created a handful of chances once him, De Catlare, Scamacca were on, De Catlare could have scored a hat-trick. Um, but yeah, the 2-0 win was secured by an academy product who's not as well-known, Nadia Zotea, who Sassuolo ironically rejected to secure a permanent option on after having him on loan last season. But... Yeah, overall, really excited about the prospect of Atalanta. I think they've got a huge sort of array of profiles. A player, Tone Cook Miners, has been strongly linked with a move away. I think it's vitally important for their top four aspirations that they keep hold of him for at least one more year. I think it is maybe safe to say he probably is destined for the top. But other than that, what Atalanta's squad is now is what you'd expect probably for most of the season. And Devan Zapata is still lying around, so they've got... And Adam Ola-Luckman is a top lead scorer from last season. So they've got plenty of options and plenty of versatility. So I think it could be, yeah, hopefully Atalanta 2.0, but early days, let's see. Well, I look forward to seeing, yeah, how that Atalanta side fares across this season. Now, Michael, one of the silver linings from a series of transfers in Calcio this summer is the pathway paved for young talents to shine. Juventus, nurturing the talents of Fabio Moretti and Nicolo Fagioli, chose to part company with another promising midfielder, Nicolo Rovera, to rivals Lazio. Now, Michael, amidst these choices, what factors led you to pinpoint the relatively overlooked Italian prodigy as the one to keep an eye on this season? Yeah, interesting for two reasons, I guess. One, for the reason that you said, and two, you know, Moretti started for Juventus at the weekend. Fagioli came off the bench in a good win. Ravella was overlooked in Lazio's surprise defeat to Lecce. But despite that, I, I, I think there's a reason to be excited for both Lazio and Ravella this season. We'll focus probably more on Lazio as a team, as a collective in the coming weeks. But this is very much a new look, Sarri Lazio, really moving away from the uh, Simonians. Zaggy days when he was at the helm. But Ravella is potentially, this could be a huge move for him. He's he's a, it, Italy under 21 international, been a part of the Euro squad in the summer as well. And he'd a player we briefly mentioned in his two previous loans. He was on loan at Genoa when they got relegated two seasons ago. But I think it was safe to say he's probably one of the bright sparks in what was a really underwhelming season. But then he was part of a much more successful team in Monza last season. And he really 
became a more pivotal and pivotal season player as the season went on. And I guess in terms of Rebella as an introduction, he's got sort of a quite a tall midfielder. I think he's about six foot one. He has doesn't look like your sort of typical Italian player, maybe what you think of Sandro Tonali, um, sort of blonde, kind of sweaty, curly locks, but he is a tenacious midfielder, very much in the mould of a Gennaro Gattuso type, who has a sensational reading of the game, has an excellent ability to win the ball back, and can really play at the heart of a midfielder at a really good level in years to come. I truly believe he is also sort of a very composed and intelligent player on the ball. And whilst sort of goal scoring credentials aren't too high, I wouldn't look at that and judge his game too much off it because I don't think that is a huge part to his game. But yeah, there's been a real linear pattern of progress for Rabella over the past few seasons. When you look at those loan spells, he did actually get a few appearances for Juventus that started last season before going out on loan to Monza. And I do think part of the reason for that is that Juventus do have Manuel Locatelli in their ranks. And given he's maybe the sort of current high-profile Italian player that Ravella maybe resembles the most, I think it would have been quite obvious that, one, he may not have got the opportunities that he may have needed to progress, but also we talked about Juventus's financial situation even more so with the Plus of the Lanze case, even more so with not being in European football this season, that I think the club had to make a decision that they had quite a valuable asset on their books who maybe wasn't going to play too much. So it seems a very logical solution. Not always the case of Juventus to uh, send him to Lazio where he's gone on a two-year loan. I can't remember if it's an optional obligation to buy, but you would hope that Lazio will take that up if Sarri's still in charge at least of the club by then. But I think there's a lot that he can add to Lazio. I think Lazio's midfield maybe over the past few years has been often accused, maybe since the departure of sort of Lucas Lever in his prime, of maybe not having enough bite. You've had Milinkovic Savic and Luis Alberto sort of dominating the flanks of the central midfield. And, you know, whilst Luis Alberto's still there, we've got Kamada, who's arrived, number of players arrived to Serie A from Frankfurt. And I, I think that whilst those are two players who may really steal the spotlight for Lazio this season, if it is all going to come together, that's just be clear, there's been a huge overhaul at Lazio, so it might take them a few weeks to get going. Ravella could be at the heart of it. And yeah, a really intelligent, defensively-minded player who I think the better team he's playing in, the team that's got more and more control, it'll be a really interesting test to see if he can step up consistently, both to get in the team and to play at a high level for the Bianca Celeste. But yeah, a really exciting player. Many of the shout-outs could have had the two Juventus players, like we said, or even Andrea Cambiasso, Matteo Ritegui, uh, Argentinian-born Italian striker at Genoa has just arrived. Could be a big season for him as well. And there's a few players like Edison and Elman Loriente who I could have easily talked about, but they are 24, so I thought they're just a little bit too old for our liking. Wonderful stuff, as always, Michael. Yeah, I think... Italian football promises to provide us with yet another narrative waste season and we'll be following it every step of the way here on the Road to Nowhere podcast. Okay, well, Michael has waxed lyrical there for about 20 minutes, so hopefully you, the listener, enjoyed all of that. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to give Michael a chance to take a glass of water and then we're going to come back to chat through some of the storylines to follow in the Bundesliga. We'll be right back. 
In Germany, there's every chance that many a heart in North Rhine-Westphalia is still broken three months on from a cruel final day for both Dortmund and Schalke. The former snatched defeat from the jaws of victory, while latter suffered their second relegation in the space of three seasons. The 2022-23 Bundesliga campaign on the whole was laced with narratives from Florian Wirtz's wizardry under the guidance of Xabi Alonso to Union Berlin's memorable and successful push for Champions League football. Focusing now on the 23-24 campaign, what Bundesliga storyline should we be following over the next nine months or so, Ali? Yeah, Michael, I feel like it would have been remiss of us not to have started with Harry Kane's 100 million euros move to Bayern Munich. Now, last season, Julian Nagelsmann and Thomas Tuchel both tried and both failed to implement a genuinely effective post-Lewandowski attack at the Allianz Arena with several hybrid strikers, I suppose you could call them, including Sadio Mane. Now, the less said about his move from Anfield to the Allianz Arena, the better, I think. But anyway, while the attack at times showed real potential, it just never really clicked. So against that backdrop, their desperation to bring in Harry Kane made total sense. On his Bundesliga debut, he looked very good and the early signs suggest that he is going to link up brilliantly with Leroy Sané, Kingsley Coman and Jamal Musiala in a sort of fluid 4-2-3-1 formation with Kane through the middle, Musiala operating in behind him, nominally anyway, Sané on the right and Coman on the left. Now, we will see Harry Kane dropping deep. We'll probably see Musiala running beyond Harry Kane at times. It's just the way that Kane likes to play. But I think, yeah, the early signs are that that attack is going to be extremely exciting to watch. Now, of course, Bayern have won the previous 11 Bundesliga titles, but they are points total of 71 last term when, of course, they only just squeezed past Borussia Dortmund. That was, in fact, their lowest since the 2010 2011 campaign and in that season they they finished third so I think it was also quite telling that people aren't talking about what Bayern did on that final day of last season in the same legendary terms as they might talk about for example Sergio Aguero's late winner against Queen's Park Rangers back in 2012 Jamal Musiala's late late winner away at Köln should have felt more dramatic than it did but there is an apathy of sorts when it comes to Bayern and that apathy certainly I think fed into the reaction to what should really have been one of the most dramatic days in the Bundesliga's or rather the most dramatic final days in the Bundesliga's history. Now heading into the new season there was a feeling that this Bayern side was quite vulnerable and that they were there to be got at. In an article on The Athletic, uh, Rafa Honestein actually highlighted the fact that more than 60% of voters in an online poll by leading German football magazine Kicker thought that Bayern Munich wouldn't win the league for a 12th time in a row. And on paper anyway, Bayern's supposed title rivals were all shaping up nicely. Leipzig have made some shrewd young signings, including Lois Openda, who we of course mentioned at Lons last season. They brought in Bonjamin Chesco, Castillo Luqueba and Javi Simons. So on paper, those are really exciting signings, certainly providing Leipzig with a lot of flair up front and the players that they hope can replace the, the, the outgoings uh, from, from RB Leipzig this summer. Dortmund, motivated apparently by a desire to right the wrongs of that final day collapse last season, look hungry for success. Certainly they're talking the talk when it comes to saying that that 
failure has inspired them, has driven them, has motivated them to do so much better this time around. So whether or not that comes to pass, we'll, we'll wait and see. But as with anything when it comes to Dortmund, I'm not terribly optimistic. And then Bayer Leverkusen have recruited well as they look to continue their impressive start to life under Xabi Alonso. And they've been buoyed by the fact that they've sold more season tickets than ever before. And certainly the Bay Arena on that opening day of the season and that 3-2 win over Leipzig, it was rocking. There was an atmosphere there that probably, arguably, hasn't been felt since the early 21st century when you had that brilliant Bayer Leverkusen team with the likes of Michael Ballack and, and Lucio and team that ultimately fell quite heartbreakingly short um, and earned the, the nickname Bayer Leverkusen. But there is a feeling that, I suppose, momentum, you could say, is coming back to the Bayer Arena. And if they can keep hold of Xabi Alonso as a manager which is a big if, then over this season and over the next season, potentially they can challenge. But anyway, circling back to Bayern Munich, I've sidetracked there slightly, Michael, but I am really excited about the prospect of a Bayern Munich attack spearheaded by Harry Kane, both domestically and probably even more so in Europe. His signing was a statement of Bayern's intent and a reminder, if we ever needed one, that Bayern are still a huge force in the European game. Turning my attention now to a club much smaller in size and stature than Bayern Munich, but no less exciting as a narrative for listeners of the podcast. I'm talking about Heidenheim. Now, Heidenheim are playing in the Bundesliga for the first time in their history this season. The town, geographically, is located between Munich and Stuttgart and has a population of just 50,000 people. And the club's home ground, in fact, holds just 15,000, which I think is... Probably, well, depending on what website you look at, smaller than Rugby Park or only just slightly bigger than Rugby Park Kilmarnock Stadium. So that gives you a little bit of perspective when it comes to Heidenheim. Now, you'll probably remember the sensational final day of the previous campaign in the second tier of German football, which, of course, saw Heidenheim secure automatic promotion to the top flight at poor old Hamburg's expense. We, of course, referenced that final day last season on the podcast but just to give you a, a sort of a run through an overview of what happened if you ever needed one well Darmstadt were already promoted and the second automatic promotion spot was still up for grabs and it would go to either Heidenheim or Hamburg so Hamburg got the result they needed with a 1-0 win at Sandhausen and at the final whistle the Hamburg fans poured onto the pitch to celebrate thinking that the job was done with Heidenheim trailing 2-1 against Jan Regensburg in stoppage time and the stadium announcer at Sandhounds and actually himself even jumped the gun prematurely congratulating Hamburg on their promotion. However, Heidenheim then equalised in the 93rd minute, which would still have been enough to have seen Hamburg promoted. But Heidenheim then went on to score a winner in the 99th minute, earning the club promotion to the Bundesliga for the first time in their history. There are some quite iconic images of Hamburg fans on the pitch at Sandhausen with their head in their hands, with you know, their caps covering their faces. It's really quite something. And uh, yeah, <laughs> tragic stuff. But uh, at the same time, it gives us plenty to talk about. The Heidenheim story on the whole is remarkable, Michael. They are just the second club after RB Leipzig to climb from the regional fifth tier all the way to the top flight. And of course, they have done it without the levels of investment seen at Leipzig or at Hoffenheim, who similarly climbed through the divisions to the top flight. That rise through the divisions has been overseen by the club's manager, Frank Schmidt, who was born in the town itself and represented the club as a player. So he is 
the, the quintessential local hero, definitely one of their own, Michael. He's been in the dugout since September 2007, and he's actually just a month or so away from becoming the longest-serving coach in German professional football history at 16 years. And if he were to stay in charge until then, he would hope that the club, having stood by him all this time, would at least give him another month, even if Heidenheim were to go winless across the next few fixtures. If if he can reach that uh, 16 years mark, then he will surpass Freiburg's Volker Fink. Um, and I think the fact that Schmidt has been in charge since September 2007, I don't know about you, Michael, but there's something almost comforting about that, that sort of pre-mass use of social media. There's almost something quite reassuring about that, like a throwback to, to halcyon days of, of coming home from school and watching SpongeBob SquarePants with uh, some potato waffles. Perhaps I'm just romanticising uh, halcyon days, but yeah, something about it gives me a, a warm, fuzzy feeling. <laughs> anyway, uh, coming back to Heidenheim and the expectations will be modest. I think they did lose 2-0 to Wolfsburg on match day one and you do feel like they will be in for a long season battling to avoid the drop. Still, they do provide us with another great Bundesliga storyline to follow. Keep an eye out as well, Michael, for 27-year-old striker Tim Kreindeich. He scored 25 goals in 32 games in the second tier last season and the club have managed to thus far retain his services despite reported interest from elsewhere. Regardless of how they fare, it's a great story. It's a cracking little stadium. And yeah, Frank Schmidt, one of the, one of the heroes of the Bundesliga already arguably. Turning our attention now to a young player I'm really excited to watch this season if he can stay fit and that is Julian Duranville. Uh, I think we need to spotlight Duranville, the 17-year-old Belgian winger who made his Bundesliga debut on the final day of last season in that heartbreaking draw with Mainz. He was brought on for Julian Brandt in the 62nd minute with his side trailing 2-0. Now, Michael, on the one hand, you might question why Eden Terzic put so much pressure on such a young player. You might say it was mismanagement of a promising young talent to bring him on for his debut in that sort of high-pressure situation. But on the other hand, we could look at it as a reflection of how highly Terzic rates Duranville. And being honest, Michael, the youngster made a really positive impression in that game. Not a lot of Dortmund players made such a positive impression in that game. It was a pretty calamitous display but Duranville came on he took the game to Mainz and he showed a real willingness to run at his man and in his 30 minute cameo he managed more successful take-ons than any other player in his Dortmund team with the exception of Yusufa Makoko and no Dortmund player attempted more crosses into the penalty area in that game so there's there's a reason Michael why people are so excited about Duranville he's the type of player that gets fans up off their seats and as you know Michael that's the type of player that, that I love to talk about he's the type of player you want to get in the ball as often as possible he's incredibly speedy too which adds another layer to his game now Dortmund signed him from Anderlecht in January this year when he was just 16 and for what it's worth he was actually handed his Anderlecht senior debut by Vincent Company just before he left the club to go on and manage Burnley so a case of talent recognising talent there is a real hope that Duranville can follow in the footsteps of the likes of Jaden Sancho and Jude Bellingham and flourish at the Signal Iduna Park speaking after Duranville signed his first professional contact with Anderlecht back in May 2021 the club's academy director 
John Kinderman said, Julian is a pure talent who can perform well on both flanks. He's lightning fast, an unpredictable dribbler, and he's also very effective in front of goal. Julian is also a real winner. Dortmund's sporting director, Sebastian Kell, described Duranville as a fast, technically strong and creative winger in whom we see great potential. So high praise indeed from people in high places. The Bundesliga website compares Duranville's style to Sancho, noting that pace is the teenager's biggest asset, along with the ability to pull off a trick or two to wriggle out of tight spaces and away from his markers. Comparisons have actually also been drawn with another former Dortmund wide man in Usman Dembele. Now, I would, however, caveat what I've just said about Duranville with the fact that his fledgling career has been somewhat hindered by injuries. He missed large parts of last season with a muscular injury and muscular problems also forced him to miss Dortmund's season opener this time around against Köln. That said, Michael, I have a really good feeling about him. If he can stay fit, I think we'll start to see Terzic use him fairly regularly, either in the starting lineup or off the bench. Okay, I think we'll draw our preview of sorts of the Bundesliga season to a close there. We are going to take a quick break before coming back for part four, in which we are going to put Ligan under the Road to Nowhere microscope. We'll be right back. Yeah, well, thank you, Ali, for your comprehensive coverage of the Bundesliga ahead of the upcoming season. And, well, now on to France, I guess, and the 22-23 Ligue 1 campaign did not have its drama to seek. PSG stumbled unconvincingly to an 11th league title, while Lons lit up the northeast and beyond secure Champions League football at the iconic Stade Baudet de l'Elysse. Elsewhere, Will still stole the managerial headlines and his 15 minutes of social media fame. And Toulouse bumped Nantes 5-1 in the Coupe de France final to win their first ever major trophy. So looking ahead, what storylines and narratives does the new season have in store for us? Yeah, plenty of narratives in store, as always, with Ligan. It's a hell on which I'm willing to die, Michael, that Ligan is criminally underrated. Anyway, I think... I have to start this section with a few words on my beloved Strasbourg. Uh, They are, of course, entering a new blue dawn, you might say. And just before we unpack this new era for Strasbourg, actually, I would recommend checking out an excellent article on Get French Football News, which was written by James Evans. His article captures the local sentiment in Strasbourg excellently. I must say, Michael, I was sceptical when I heard the news in June that Bluco, the consortium, of course, that owns Chelsea, had acquired a significant stake in Strasbourg. And to an extent, I am still sceptical. And I think it's fair to say that that scepticism is well-founded. Taking the customary road to nowhere step back to look at the wider picture, Strasbourg as a club is very much tied to the region of Alsace and as James Evans notes in that aforementioned article, the regional identity that the club has is at its very core and is key to the fans and the ultras. The club can, in my opinion, comfortably claim to have one of the best supports in the country and every home game last season was sold out, let's not forget. And that was a season in which Strasbourg really struggled. There was a lot of poor football, a lot of poor results. Expanding on that, the Ultra Boys, 91 of the main groups taking up residence behind the goal, the main over to the left, if you're looking at it from where the cameras are. They issued a strongly worded statement in May when rumours are swirling of a Todd Bowley-led 
take over, citing their fear of, quote, becoming an affiliate or feeder club completely dependent on another club, unquote. Now, on the final day of the 2022-2023 season, when Royong faced Strasbourg, the anti-takeover sentiment was palpable throughout the stadium. In the away end, the Strasbourg Ultras raised a banner reading, Royong, Nepa, Bournemouth. Royong is not Bournemouth, for those who need a translation. Um, and that was, of course, referring to Bill Foley's takeover of the Breton Club back in January. And in the home end, the Ultras from Loyon raised a banner reading, Strasbourg, Nepa, Chelsea. Uh, Strasbourg is not Chelsea, for those again. Not sure we needed the second translation there. <laughs> oh, no, that's probably mansplaining. My apologies for mansplaining that. I do apologise profusely. Um, but yeah, the, the point of that story, Michael, is that the anti-takeover sentiment was palpable and there was a certain solidarity between the two clubs there. There is, of course, a precedence at Strasbourg when it comes to takeovers by American consortiums. Back in 1997, a consortium led by American lawyer Mark McCormack and the IMG Group bought the club with the promise to take the club to new heights. Where have we heard that before? After five years of stagnation and disappointing results, the club was sold on, which sparked the downfall of the club, eventually ending in bankruptcy in 2011. And just as another point to sort of back up this whole scepticism, shall we say, when it comes to this Bluco takeover. A lot of Strasbourg fans point to the example of Trois. Now, Trois were, of course, acquired by the City Group, owners of 13 clubs around the world, including Manchester City, back in 2020. And after initially getting promoted out of League 2 that very same year, the investment tap seems to have been turned off, Trois suffering relegation back to League 2 at the end of last season. So... When you take all of that into account, you can see, Michael, why there is a feeling in some quarters that Strasbourg have sold their soul to some sort of blue devil. Anyway, what has been quite encouraging and telling for me is the fact that Mark Keller has remained as club president. He's been in that role since 2012 and he is held in high esteem by players and fans alike, having stepped up as club president after the club went bankrupt in 2012, as I was saying it oh, comes full circle, Michael, doesn't it? And they, of course, then had to rebuild from the fifth year of French football. So for me, Keller is without doubt one of the best club presidents in the country. I've said that before and I'll, I'll stand by that. Furthermore, to Bluco's credit, they have thus far talked to talk and walked to walk. The Bluco shareholders declared, quote, it's an honour for us to be part of this historic club. We are committed to preserving the heritage of Racing and are focused on working closely with Mark Keller and his management team to continue the excellent work they have been doing, unquote. In the transfer market, they've invested over 50 million euros in the playing squad, bringing in a host of promising youngsters, including 20-year-olds Emmanuel Omega and Abakar Sila from Sturmgratz and Club Brugge, respectively. The appointment of Patrick Vieira as the club's new manager in July on a three-year deal also felt like a statement. On the pitch, they were impressive, if not flawless in their 2-1 win over Lyon in match day one at a buoyant Stade de la Mano. Vieira set them up in a fluid 3-5-2 formation and there was a real focus on playing the ball out from the back, moving the ball quickly, getting the ball into Omega's feet as the second striker. 25-year-old jean Reitner Bellegarde was immense, operating on the right side of a midfield three, recovering the ball eight times, scoring the first goal and providing an inch-perfect assist for the second. He also registered more progressive carries and more successful take-ons than any of his teammates. He did 
However, get the impression that Strasbourg would have been more comfortable had Habib Diallo been playing and had Habib Diara been playing. Now, at the time of recording, it looks like they're both looking to force a move elsewhere, although perhaps Habib Diara might be staying. I think Vieira in particular was very keen for Habib Diara to stay. He's still very young, and I think Vieira wanted to, to keep him on board, both so that Strasbourg could benefit from his potential, but also so that Diara could benefit from regular first-team football and Vieira's guidance. If both of those players were to depart, however, i.e. Diara and Diallo, I wouldn't be too surprised to see Boyko reaching for the checkbook once again. Now, I do have to say, Michael, as well, there's there's pessimism from me and there's optimism from me, but the, the display against Monaco was, was rather underwhelming. Monaco... To their credit, were excellent. Eddie Hooter has made a really positive impression at the Stade Louis Deux, but on the whole, Strasbourg looked quite sloppy. They looked like a team that had been put together on the basis of sort of football manager esque aspirations, the same way that a lot of the Chelsea performances looked like that. And that for me was just a little bit ominous, but hey, maybe it was Monaco who were impressive and not so much Strasbourg who were poor, but we do, I think, need to monitor that. We do need to monitor how well all of these new young signings gel and and how well Vieira can mould this increasingly young team into a team that can that can perform and and, and with the money they've invested, they should arguably be, be pushing for a European spot. In terms of a young player to follow. I could have picked several of Strasbourg's new signings, but I do think we should spotlight Toulouse's 23-year-old Dutch striker, Thijs Deringa, who was born on the 3rd of August 2000. You might remember, or you might not remember, that he scored 36 times across the 2021-2022 campaign for Excelsior in the second tier of Dutch football, and, and he backed that up with 12 goals for Toulouse last time out. He also memorably bagged a brace in April's thumping cup win over Nantes at the Stade de France. So he's already made quite the impression. We previously spoke on the podcast about Toulouse's extensive use of data and recruitment. I think that was maybe back in October last year we spoke about that. And Dalinga is a classic example of that studious approach bearing fruit. He only cost the club two and a half million euros. In terms of his style of play, he's a clinical finisher with excellent movement. The official Liga and website describes Dalinga as a typical number nine who likes to find space in between defenders in the penalty box where he scores the majority of his goals. He's not the tallest, but he is a shoot at making runs in front of or in behind defenders and at sniffing around for a rebound in the area. Dalinga himself describes his game as versatile. He said, I have developed into an attacker who can be played in depth, but also can act as a point of contact. And as noted in a really insightful piece on The Athletic, on their sort of 50 players to watch this season. Delinga has the ability to attack the spaces in behind, but also come short to play the passing game. To me, he's definitely the type of striker who likes to play predominantly on the shoulder of his marker, and his first goal against Non in the cup final was Delinga's game in microcosm. He hovered between the two non-centre-halves, arched his run to perfection, latched onto a delicious through ball from Gabriel Swazo, if I'm remembering correctly, and he dinked the ball over the unrushing Alban Lafont. His second goal in the game was extinctive number nine play, being in the right place at the right time to tap home a rebound. Now, I would caveat all of this praise with the fact that his underlying numbers are rather underwhelming. 
there is an awful lot of red on his FB ref scout report, so maybe we should temper our expectations slightly. He's not yet been capped by the senior team at international level, but he was part of the Netherlands under-21 setup at this summer's under-21 Euros, coming off the bench twice in a rather underwhelming group stages for the Dutch side. He's not ready for the senior team yet, but his finishing and his level-headedness suggest that he may well one day get that call-up. Thinking about Toulouse as a whole, there is a real feeling that the club might suffer from the infamous second season syndrome over the next nine months or so. Several members of the playing staff have left the club over the summer. Notably, they've lost their starting goalkeeper, Maxime Dupé, Danderlecht, and the influential midfield trio of Stein Spearings, Branko van den Boomen and Brecht Diagre have all moved on to pastures new. Philippe Montagnier was also dismissed as manager in June. He was replaced by his assistant, Carlos martinez Novel following reports of a, a breakdown in relations between Montagnier and the board. And Michael, that decision was surprising, to say the least. Montagnier played a crucial role in both leading the club to Coupe de France glory and getting them back into the top flight of French football. So when we couple that rather disruptive summer with the fact that the club will need to juggle their league commitments with playing Europa League football this season, the outlook does look rather ominous, you could say, for Toulouse. That said, they have started the season actually quite positively. They won 2-1 away at Nantes and then they drew 1-0 with PSG at home. So, yeah, they're going to be an interesting watch this season to lose, I think, in Europe as well. I'm not quite sure how they will fare, but they've got the they've got the setup when it comes to recruitment to, to bring the right players in. We saw how well that recruitment did last season and, and the season before. So, yeah, maybe we shouldn't be too down in the dumps, shall we say, about Toulouse, notwithstanding their disruptive summer. In any event, Michael, you do feel like the blossoming Dalinga will have a key role to play in ensuring the club steers well clear of a relegation battle. I'm certainly looking forward to watching him, hopefully, flourish once again. Okay, I think on that note, we will draw this episode to a close. Hopefully, you, the listener, have learned a thing or two, or perhaps even three. Michael Jones has been sitting patiently there. I'll, I'll come to you now, Michael. What are your plans for the rest of the evening? We're sitting here about 25 past nine. Anything planned or is it going to be a, a quick shower and then bed for, for Mr Jones? Those things will happen. Um, there is actually on Serie A YouTube channel, they have the Primavera Supercoppa on between Lecce and Roma, two teams who we've really sort of sang the praises about their youth system. So Going to catch the little bit of that at the end to see if there's any uh, players for uh, young players to break through for next season. What about you, Ali? I think, um, well, I'm going to edit some of the podcast and then I'll maybe catch the end of the Rangers game against PSV, I think. Certainly when I last checked, they were still winning 1-0. So anyway, Michael, I think on that note, we will, we will, yeah, we will end the podcast there. We'll wish the listener well. Until next time, stay safe, stay well. Good night.